Section 5 of His Family This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson His Family by Ernest Poole Chapter 13 Deborah's recovery was rapid and determined. The next night she was sitting up and making light of her illness. On the third day she dismissed her nurse, and when her father came home from his office, he found gathered about her not only her stenographer, but both her assistant principals. He frowned severely and went to his room, and a few minutes later he heard them leave. Presently she called to him, and he came to her bedside. She was lying back on the pillow with rather a guilty expression. "'Up to your old antics, eh?' he remarked. "'Exactly. It couldn't be helped, you see. It's the last week of our school year, and there are so many little things that have to be attended to. It's simply now or never.' "'Harumph!' was Roger's comment. "'It's now or never with you,' he thought. He went down to his dinner, and when he came back he found her exhausted. In the dim soft light of her room her face looked flushed and feverish, and vaguely he felt she was in a mood where she might listen to reason. He felt her hot, dry hand on his. Her eyes were closed. She was smiling. "'Tell me the news from the mountains,' she said, and he gave her the gossip of the farm in a letter he had had from George. It told of a picnic supper, the first one of the season." They had had it in the usual place, down by the dam on the river, with a bonfire, a perfect peach, down by the big yellow rock, the one you called Elephant. As Roger read the letter he could feel his daughter listening, vividly picturing to herself the great dark boulders by the creek, the shadowy firs, the stars above, and the cool fresh tang of the mountain night. After this little sickness of yours, and that harem-scarum wedding, he said, I feel we're both entitled to a good long rest in mountain air. We'll have it, too, she murmured. With Edith's little youngsters, they're all the medicine you need. He paused for a moment, hesitating, but it was now or never. The only trouble with you, he said, is that you've let yourself be caught by the same disease which has its grip upon this whole infernal town. You're like everyone else. You're tackling about forty times what you can do. You're actually trying not only to teach, but to bring them all up as your own, three thousand tenement children. And this is where it gets you. Again he halted, frowning. What next? Go on, dear, please, said Deborah, in demure and even tones. This is very interesting. Now then, he continued, in this matter of your school, I wouldn't ask you to give it up. I've already seen too much of it. But so long as you've got it nicely started, why not give somebody else a chance? One of those assistants of yours, for example, capable young women, both. You could stand right behind em with help and advice. Not yet was Deborah's soft reply. She had turned her head on her pillow and was looking at him affectionately. Why not, he demanded. Because it's not nicely started at all. There's nothing brilliant about me, dear. I'm a plodder feeling my way along, and what I have done in the last ten years is just coming to a stage at last where I can really see a chance to make it count for something. When I feel I've done that, say, in five years more—' "'Those five years,' said her father, 
may cost you a very heavy price. As Deborah faced his troubled regard, her own grew quickly serious. I'd be willing to pay the price, she replied. But why? he asked with impatience. Why pay when you don't have to? Why not by taking one year off get strength for twenty years' work later on? You'd be a different woman. Yes, I think I should be. I'd never be the same again. You don't quite understand, you see. This work of mine with children, well, it's like Edith's having a baby. You have to do it while you're young. That works both ways, her father growled. What do you mean? He hesitated. Don't you want any children of your own? Again she turned her eyes toward his, then closed them and lay perfectly still. Now I've done it, he thought anxiously. She reached over and took his hand. Let's talk of our summer's vacation, she said. A little while later she fell asleep. Downstairs he soon grew restless, and after a time he went out for a walk. But he felt tired and oppressed, and as he had often done of late, he entered a little movie nearby, where gradually the pictures continually flashing out of the dark drove the worries from his mind. For half an hour they held his gaze. Then he fell into a doze. He was roused by a roar of laughter, and straightening up in his seat with a jerk, he looked angrily around. Something broadly comic had been flashed upon the screen, and men and women and children, Italians, Jews, and Irish, jammed in close about him, a dirty and perspiring mass, had burst into a terrific guffaw. Now they were suddenly tense again, and watching the screen in absorbed suspense, while the crude passions within themselves were played upon in the glamorous dark. And Roger scanned their faces, one moment smiling altogether, as though some god had pulled a string, then mawkish, sentimental, soft, then suddenly scowling, twitching, with long rows of animal eyes. But eager, eager all the time, hungry people. Yes, indeed, hungry for all the good things in the town, and for as many bad things, too. On one who tried to feed this mob there was no end to their demands. What was one woman's life to them? Deborah's big family. Edith came to the house one afternoon, and she was in Deborah's room when her father returned from his office. Her convalescence over at last, she was leaving for the mountains. Do learn your lesson, Deborah, dear, she urged upon her sister. Let Sarah pack your trunk at once and come up with me on Saturday night. I can't get off for two weeks yet. Why can't you? Edith demanded. And when Deborah spoke of fresh air camps and baby farms and other work, Edith's impatience only grew. You'll have to leave it to somebody else. You're simply in no condition, she cried. Impossible, said Deborah. Edith gave a quick sigh of exasperation. Isn't it enough, she asked, to have worked your nerves to a frazzle already? Why can't you be sensible? You've got to think of yourself a little. You'd like me to marry, wouldn't you, dear? Her sister put in wearily. Yes, I should, while there is still time. Just now you look far from it. It's exactly as Alan was saying. If you keep on as you're going... You'll be an old woman at thirty-five. Thank you, said Deborah sharply. Two spots of color leaped in her cheeks. You'd better leave me, Edith. I'll come up to the mountains as soon as I can. 
and I'll try not to look any more like a hag than I have to. Good night. Roger followed Edith out of the room. That last shot of mine struck home, she declared to him in triumph. I wouldn't have done it, her father said. I gave you that remark of Baird's in strict confidence, Edith. Now, father, was her good-humored retort, suppose you leave this matter to me. I know just what I'm doing. Well, he reflected uneasily, after she had left him, here's more trouble in the family. If Edith isn't careful, she'll make a fine mess of this whole affair. After dinner he went up to Deborah's room, but through the open doorway he caught a glimpse of his daughter, which made him instinctively draw back. Sitting bolt upright in her bed, sternly she was eyeing herself in a small mirror in her hand. Her father chuckled noiselessly. A moment later, when he went in, the glass had disappeared from view. Soon afterwards Baird himself arrived, and as they heard him coming upstairs, Roger saw his daughter frown, but she continued talking. "'Hello, Alan,' she said with indifference. "'I'm feeling much better this evening.' "'Are you? Good,' he answered, and he started to pull up an easy chair. "'I was hoping I could stay a while. I've been having one of those long, mean days.' "'I'd a little rather you wouldn't,' Deborah put in softly. Alan turned to her in surprise. "'I didn't sleep last night,' she murmured, "'and I feel so drowsy.' There was a little silence. "'And I really don't think there's any need of your dropping in tomorrow,' she added. "'I'm so much better. Honestly.' Baird looked at her a moment. "'Right-o,' he answered slowly. "'I'll call you up tomorrow night.' Roger followed him downstairs. "'Come into my den and smoke a cigar,' he proposed in hearty, ringing tones. Alan thanked him and came in, but the puzzled expression was still on his face, and through the first moments of their talk he was very absent-minded. Roger's feeling of guilt increased, and he cursed himself for a meddlesome fool. "'Look here, Baird,' he blurted out. "'There's something I think you ought to know.' Alan slightly turned his head, and Roger reddened a little. The worst thing about living in a house chock-full of meddling women is that you get to be one yourself, he growled. And the fact is, he cleared his throat, I've put my foot in it, Baird, he said. I was fool enough the other day to quote you to Edith. To what effect? That if Deborah keeps on like this, she'll be an old woman at thirty-five. Alan sat up in his chair. "'Was Edith here this afternoon?' "'She was,' said Roger. "'Say no more.' Baird had a wide, likable, generous mouth, which wrinkled easily into a smile. He leaned back now and enjoyed himself. He puffed a little cloud of smoke, looked over at Roger, and chuckled aloud. And Roger chuckled with relief. "'What a decent chap he is,' he thought. "'I'm sorry, of course,' he said to Baird. "'I thought of trying to explain.' Don't, said Alan, leave it alone. It won't do Deborah any harm, may even do her a little good. After all, I'm her physician. Are you? Roger asked with a twinkle. I thought upstairs you were dismissed. Oh, no, I'm not, was the calm reply. And the two men went on smoking. Roger's liking for Baird was growing fast. They had had several little talks during Deborah's illness, and Roger was learning more of the man raised on a big cattle ranch that his father had owned in New Mexico. Riding broncos on the plain had given him 
the, his abounding health of body, nerve, and spirit, his steadiness and sanity in all this feverish city life. "'Are you riding these days?' he inquired. "'No,' said Roger. "'The park is too hot, and they don't sprinkle the path as they should. I've had my cob sent up to the mountains, by the way,' he added cordially. "'You must come up there and ride with me.' "'Thanks, I'd like to,' Alan said. And with a little inner smile he added dryly to himself, "'He's getting ready to meddle again, but whatever amusement Baird had in his thought he concealed behind his sober grey eyes. Soon after that he took his leave. "'Now then,' Roger reflected, with a little glow of expectancy, "'if Edith will only leave me alone, she may find I'm smarter than she thinks.' One evening in the following week, after Edith had left town, Roger had Bruce to dine at his club, a pleasant old building on Madison Square, where comfortably, all by themselves, they could discuss Baird's chances. A. Baird and I have been chums, said Bruce, ever since we were in college. Take it from me, I know his brand, and he isn't the kind to be pushed. "'Who wants to push him?' Roger demanded, with a sudden guilty twinge. "'Edith does,' Bruce answered. "'And I tell you, that won't do with A. Baird. "'He has his mind set on Deborah, sure. "'He's been setting it harder and harder for months, "'and he knows it, and so does she. "'But they're both the kind of people who don't like interference. "'They've got to get to it by themselves. "'Edith must keep out of the way.' She mustn't take it on herself to ask him up to the mountains. Roger gave a little start. If she does, there'll be trouble with Deborah. Roger smoked for a moment in silence, and then sagely nodded his head. That's so, he murmured thoughtfully. Yes, my boy, I guess you're right. Bruce lifted his mint julep. God, but it's hot in here tonight. How about taking a spin up the river? Delighted, replied his father-in-law and a half-hour later in Bruce's new car, which was the pride and joy of his life, they were far up the river. On a long, level stretch of road, Bruce led her out to show what she could do, and Roger, with his heart in his mouth and his eye upon the speedometer, saw it creep to sixty-three. "'Almost as good as a horse,' remarked Bruce, when the car had slowed a little. "'Almost,' said Roger, but not quite. "'It's... Well, it's dissipation. And a horse? Is life, was the grave reply. You'll have a crash some day, my boy, if you go on at your present speed. It gets me worried sometimes. You see, you're a family man. I am, and I'm glad of it. Edith and the kiddies suit me right down to the ground. I'm crazy about em. You know that. But a chap with a job like mine... Bruce continued pleadingly, as he drove his car rushing around a curve, needs a little dissipation, too. I can't tell you what it means to me, when I am kept late at the office, to have this car for the run-up home. Lower Broadway's empty then, and I know the cops. I swing around through Washington Square, and the avenue looks clear for miles, nothing but two long rows of lights to the big hump at Murray Hill. It's the time between crowds, say about ten, and I know the cops. That's all right, said Roger. No one was more delighted than I when you got this car. You deserve it. It's the work that I was speaking of. You've got it going at such a speed. Only way on earth to get on. 
to get what I want for my family. Yes, yes, I know, muttered Roger vaguely. Bruce began talking of his work for the steel construction concern downtown. Take it from me, he declared at the end. This town has only just begun. Has, eh? Roger grunted. Aren't the buildings high enough? My God, I wish they were twenty times higher, Bruce rejoined good-humoredly. But they won't be. We've stopped going up. We've done pretty well in the air, and now we're going underground. And when you get through, this old rock of Manhattan will be such a network of tunnels, there'll be a hole waiting at every corner to take you wherever you want to go. Speed? We don't even know what it means. And again, Bruce let her out a bit. It was quite a bit. Roger grabbed his hat with one hand and the side of the car with the other. They'll look back on a mile a minute, said Bruce, as we look back on stagecoach days. And in the rush hour, there'll be a rush that'll make you think of pneumatic tubes. Not a sound, nor a quiver, just pure speed, shooting people home at night at a couple of hundred miles an hour. The city will be as big as that, and there won't be any accidents, and there won't be any smoke. Instead of coal, they'll use the sun, and, my God, man, the boulevards, and parks, and places for the kids, the way they'll use the river, and the ocean, and the sound. The Catskills will be Central Park. Sounds funny, don't it? But it's true. I've studied it out from A to Z. This town is choking itself to death simply because we're so damn slow. We don't know how to spread ourselves. All this city needs is speed. Bruce, said Roger anxiously, just go a bit easy on that gas. The fact is, it was a great mistake for me to eat those crabs tonight. Bruce slowed down compassionately, and soon they turned and started home. And as they drew near, the glow of the town, other streets and boulevards, poured more motors into the line, until at last they were rushing along amid a perfect bedlam made up of honks and screeks of horns. The air grew hot and acrid, and looking back through the bluish haze of smoke and dust behind him, Roger could see hundreds of huge angry motor eyes crowding and jamming closer pell-mell at a pace which barely slackened they sped on a wild uproarious crew and swept into the city roger barely slept that night he felt the city clamoring down into his very soul speed he muttered viciously speed speed we need more speed the words beat in like a savage refrain at last, with a sigh of impatience, he got up in his nightshirt and walked about. It was good to feel his way in the dark in this cool, silent house, which he knew so well. Soon his nerves felt quieter. He went back to his bed and lay there inert. How good it would be to get up to the farm. The next Saturday evening, with Deborah, he started for the mountains, and Bruce came down to see them off. Remember, son, said Roger, as the two walked on the platform, come up this year for a month, my boy. You need it. The train was about to start. Oh, I'll be all right, was the answer. My friend, the judge, who has hay fever, tells me he has found a cure. Damn his cure. You come to us. Hold on a minute. Live and learn. The judge is quite excited about it. 
You drink little bugs, he said. A billion after every meal. They come in tall blue bottles. We're going to dine together next week and drink em till we're all lit up. Oh, we're going to have a hell of a time. His wife left town on Tuesday. Bruce said Roger sternly as the train began to move. Leave bugs alone and come up and breathe and quit smoking so many cigarettes. He stepped on the car. Remember, son, a solid month, Bruce nodded as the train moved out. Good luck. Goodbye. Fine summer. My love to the wife and the kiddies. And Bruce's dark, tense, smiling face was left behind. Roger went back into the smoker. Now for the mountains, he thought. Thank God. Chapter 14 A few hours later, Roger awakened. His lower berth was still pitch dark. The train had stopped, and he had been roused by a voice outside his window. Rough and slow and nasal, the leisurely drawl of a mountaineer. It came like balm to Roger's ears. He raised the curtain and looked out. A train hand with a lantern was listening to a dairyman, a tall young giant in top boots. High overhead loomed a shadowy mountain, and over its rim came the glow of the dawn. With a violent lurch, the train moved on, and Roger, lying back on his pillow, looked up at the misty mountain sides, all mottled in the strange blue light, with patches of firs and birches and pines. In the narrow valley up which the train was thundering were small herds of grazing cattle, a lonely farmhouse here and there. From one a light was twinkling, and the city, with its heat and noise, its nervous throb, its bedlam nights, all dropped like a fever from his soul. Now, close by the railroad track, through a shallow, rocky gorge, a small river roared and foamed. Its cool breath came up to his nostrils, and gratefully he breathed it in. For this was the Gale River, named after one of his forefathers, and in his mind's eye he followed the stream back up its course to the little station where he and Deborah were to get off. There the narrowing riverbed turned and wound up through a cleft in the hills to the homestead several miles away. On the dark forest road beside it he pictured George, his grandson, at this moment driving down to meet them in a mountain wagon with one of the two hired men, a lantern swinging under the wheels. What an adventure for young George! Presently he heard Deborah stirring in the berth next to his own. At the station George was there, and from a thermos bottle which Edith had filled the night before, he poured coffee piping hot, which steamed in the keen, frosty air. "'Oh, how good!' cried Deborah. "'How thoughtful of your mother, George. How is she, dear?' "'Oh, she's all right, Aunt Deborah.' His blunt, freckled features flushed from his drive. George stood beaming on them both. He appeared, if anything, tougher and scrawnier than before. Everything's all right, he said. There ain't a sick animal on the whole farm. As Roger sipped his coffee, he was having a look at the horses. One of them was William, his cob. Do you see it? inquired his grandson. What? The boil, George answered proudly, on William's rump. There it is on the nigh side. Gee, but you ought to have seen it last week. It was a whale of a boil, said George. But we pulsed him. Me and Dave did. And now the swelling's nearly gone. You can ride him tomorrow if you like. Luxuriously, Roger lit a cigar and climbed to the front seat with George. 
Up the steep and crooked road the stout horses tugged their way, and the wagon creaked, and the Gale River, here only a brook, came gurgling, dashing to meet them, down from the mountains, from the farm, from Roger's youth to welcome him home. And the sun was flashing through the pines. As they drew near the farmhouse through a grove of sugar maples, he heard shrill cries of, "'There they come!' and he glimpsed the flying figures of George's brothers, Bob and Tad. George whipped up the horses. The wagon gained upon the boys and reached the house, but a few rods behind the little runners. Edith was waiting by the door, fresh and smiling, blooming with health. How well this suited her, Roger thought. Amid a gay chorus of greetings, he climbed down heavily out of the wagon, looked about him, and drew a deep breath. The long lazy days on the farm had begun. From the mountainside the farm looked down on a wide sweeping valley of woods and fields. The old house straggled along the road with addition after addition built on through generations by many men and women. Here lay the history unread of the family of Roger Gale. Inside there were steps up and down from one part to another, queer crooks in narrow passageways. The lower end was attached to the woodshed, and the woodshed to the barn. Above the house a pasture dotted with grey boulders extended up to a wood of firs, and out of this wood the small river, which bore the name of the family, came rushing down the field in a gully, went under the road, swept around to the right, and along the edge of a birch copse just below the house. The little stream grew quieter there and widened into a mill-pond. At the lower end was a broken dam, and beside it a dismantled mill. Here was peace for Roger's soul. The next day at dawn he awakened, and through the window close by his bed he saw no tall confining walls. His eye was carried as on wings, out over a billowy blanket of mist, soft and white and cool and still, reaching over the valley. From underneath to his sensitive ears came the numberless voices of the awakening sleepers there, cheeps and tremulous warbles from the birch copse just below, cocks crowing in the valley, and ducks and geese, dogs, sheep, and cattle faintly heard from distant farms. Just so it had been when he was a boy. How unchanged and yet how new were these fresh hungry cries of life. From the other end of the house he heard Edith's tiny son lustily demanding his breakfast, as other wee boys before him had done for over a hundred years, as other babies still unborn would do in the many years to come. Soon the cry of the child was hushed, quiet fell upon the house, and Roger sank again into deep happy slumber. Here was nothing new and disturbing. Edith's children? Yes, they were new, but they were not disturbing. Their growth each summer was a joy, a renewal of life in the battered old house. Here was no huge tenement family crowding in with dirty faces, clamorous demands for aid, but only five delightful youngsters, clean and fresh, of his own blood. He loved the small excitements, the plans and plots and discoveries, the many adventures that filled their days. He spent hours with their mother, listening while she talked of them. Edith did so love this place, and she ran the house so beautifully. It was so cool and fragrant, so clean and so old-fashioned. Deborah, too, came under the spell. 
She grew as lazy as a cat, and day by day renewed her strength from the hills and from Edith's little brood. Roger had feared trouble here, for he knew how Edith disapproved of her sister's new ideas. But although much with the children, Deborah apparently had no new ideas at all. She seemed to be only listening. One balmy day at sunset, Roger saw her lying on the grass with George sprawled by her side. Her head upon one arm, she appeared to be watching the cattle in the sloping pasture above. Slowly, as though each one of them was drawn by mysterious unseen chains, they were drifting down toward the barn, where it was almost milking time. George was talking earnestly. She threw a glance at him from time to time, and Roger could see how intent were her eyes. Yes, Deborah knew how to study a boy. Only once during the summer did she talk about her work. On a walk with her father one day, she took him into a small forlorn building, a mere cabin of one room. The white paint had long ago been worn away. The windows were all broken. Half the old shingles had dropped from the roof, and on the flagpole was no flag. It was the district schoolhouse, where for nearly half his life Deborah's grandfather had taught a score of pupils. Inside were a blackboard, a rusty stove, a teacher's desk, and a dozen forms, grown mouldy and worm-eaten now. A torn and faded picture of Lincoln was upon one wall, half hidden by a spider's web and by a few old dangling rags which once had been red, white, and blue. Below, still clinging to the wall, was an old scrap of paper on which in a large rugged hand there had been written long ago a speech, but it had been worn away until but three words were legible, conceived and dedicated. "'Tell me about your school,' she said. "'All you can remember.' Seated at her grandfather's desk, she asked Roger many questions, and his recollections, at first dim and hazy, began to clear a little. "'By George!' he exclaimed. "'Here are my initials.' He stooped over one of the benches. Oh, dearie, where? He pointed them out, and then, while he sat on the rude old bench, for some time more she questioned him. But your school was not all here, she said musingly at last. It was up on the farm besides, where you learned to plough and sow and reap and take care of the animals in the barn, and mend things that were broken, and, oh, turn your hand to anything. But millions of children nowadays are growing up in cities, you see. Half frowning and half smiling, she began to talk of her work in town. What is there about her, Roger asked, that reminds me so of my mother? His mind strayed back into the past, while the low, quiet voice of his daughter went on, and a wistful expression crept over his face. What would she do with the family name? What life would she lead in those many years? What a mother she would make! The words rose from within him, but in a voice which was not his own. It was Deborah's grandmother speaking, so clearly and distinctly that he gave a start, almost of alarm. And if you don't believe they'll do it, Deborah was saying, you don't know what's in children. Only we've got to help bring it out. What had she been talking about? He remembered the words, a new nation. No more. We've got to grope around in the dark and hunt for new ways and learn as we go. And when you've once got into the work and really felt the thrill of it all, well, 
then it seems rather foolish and small to bother about your own little life roger spent much of his time alone he took long rides on william along crooked hilly roads as the afternoon drew to its end the shadows would creep up the mountain sides to their summits where glowed the last rays of the sun painting the slate and granite crags in lovely pink and purple hues and sometimes mighty banks of the clouds would rear themselves high overhead gigantic mountains of the air with billowy misty caverns cliffs and jagged peaks all shifting there before his eyes and he would think of judith his wife and the old haunting certainty that her soul had died with her body was gone there came to him the feeling that he and his wife would meet again why did this hope come back to him was it all from the glory of the sun or was it from the presence silent and invisible of those many other mortals folk of his own flesh and blood who at their deaths had gone to their graves to put on immortality or was this deepening faith in roger simply a sign of his growing old age he frowned at the thought and shook it off and again stared up at the light on the hills you will live on in your children's lives was there no other immortality he often thought of his boyhood here on a ride one day he stopped for a drink at a spring in a grove of maples surrounding a desolate farmhouse not more than a mile away from his own and through the trees as he turned to go he saw the stark figure of a woman poorly clad and gaunt and gray she stood motionless watching him with a look of sullen bitterness she was the last of the elkinses a mountain family run to seed as he rode away he saw in the field a boy with a pitchfork in his hands a meagre ragged little chap he was staring into the valley at a wriggling blue smoke serpent made by the night express to new york and something leaped in roger for he had once felt just like that but the woman's harsh voice cut in on his dream as she shouted to her son below hey why the hell you stand in thar and the boy with a jump of alarm turned back quickly to his work at home a few days later george with a mysterious air took his grandfather into the barn and after a pledge of secrecy he said in swift thrilling tones you know young bill elkins the boy up on the elkins place who lives alone with his mother well look here george swallowed hard bill has cleared out he's run away i was up at five this morning and he came hiking down the road he had a bundle on his back and he told me he was off for good and was he scared you bet he was scared and i told him so and it made him mad ah oh, you're scared i said i ain't neither he said he could barely talk but the kid had his nerve where are you going i asked to new york he said ah oh, what do you know about new york i said and then by golly he busted right down gee he said gee can't you leave me alone and then he beat it down the road you could hear the kid breathe he was hustling so he's way off now he's caught the train he wants to be a cabin boy on a big ocean liner for a moment there was silence well the boy demanded what do you think of his chances i don't know said roger huskily he felt a tightening in his throat abruptly he turned to his grandson george he asked what do you want to be the boy flushed 
under his freckles. I don't know as I know. I'm thinking, he answered very slowly. Talk it over with your mother, son. Yes, sir, came the prompt reply. But he won't, reflected Roger. Or, if you ever feel you want to, have a good long talk with me. Yes, sir, was the answer. Roger stood there waiting, then turned and walked slowly out of the barn. How these children grew up inside of themselves. Had boys always grown like that? Well, perhaps, but how strange it was. Always new lives, lies of their own, the old families scattering over the land, so the great life of the nation swept on. He kept noticing here deserted farms, and one afternoon in the deepening dusk he rode by a graveyard high up on a bare hillside. A horse and buggy were outside, and within he spied a lean young woman, neatly dressed in a plain dark suit. With a lawnmower brought from home she was cutting the grass on her family plot, and she seemed to fit into the landscape. New England had grown very old. Late one night, toward the end of July, there came a loud honk from down the hill, then another and another, and as George in his pajamas came rushing from his bedroom, shouting radiantly, "'Gee, it's Dad!' they heard the car thundering outside. Bruce had left New York at dawn, and had made the run in a single day, three hundred and eleven miles. He was gray with dust all over, and he was worn and hollow-eyed but his dark visage wore a look of solid satisfaction. I needed the trip to shake me down, he pleaded, when Edith scolded him well for this terrific manner of starting his vacation. I had to have it to cut me off from the job I left behind me. Now watch me settle down on this farm. But it appeared he could not settle down. For the first few days in his motor he was busy exploring the mountains. We'll make him look foolish, eh, son, he said, and with George, who mutely adored him, he ran all about them in a day. Genially, he gave everyone rides. When he'd finished with the family, he took Dave Royce, the farmer, and his wife and children, and even both the hired men, for Bruce was an hospitable soul. But more than anyone else, he took George. They spent hours working on the car, and at times when they came into the house begreased and blackened from their work, Edith reproved them like bad boys, but Deborah smiled contentedly. But at the end of another week Bruce grew plainly restless, and despite his wife's remonstrances, made ready to return to town. When she spoke of his hay fever, he bragged to her complacently of his newly discovered cure. "'Oh, bother your little blue bugs!' she cried. The bugs aren't blue, he explained to her, in a mild and patient voice that drove Edith nearly wild. They're so little they have no color at all. Poor friendly little devils. Bruce, his wife, exploded. They've been almighty good to me. You ought to have heard my friend the judge the last night I was with him. He patted his bottle and said to me, Bruce, my boy, with all these simple animals right here as our companions, why be a damn fool and run off to the cows? and there's a good deal in what he says. You ought to be mighty thankful, too, that my summer pleasures are so mild, if you could see what some chaps do. And Bruce started back for the city. George rode with him the first few miles, then left him and came trudging home. His spirits were exceedingly low. 
As August drew toward close, Deborah, too, showed signs of unrest, with ever-growing frequency. Roger felt her eagerness to return to her work in New York. "'You're as bad as Bruce,' he growled at her. "'You don't have to be back,' he argued. "'School doesn't begin for nearly three weeks.' "'There's the suffrage campaign,' she answered. He gave her a look of exasperation. "'Now what the devil has suffrage to do with your schools?' he demanded. "'When the women get the vote, we'll spend more money on the children.' "'Suppose the money isn't there,' was Roger's grim rejoinder. "'Then we'll act like old-fashioned wives, I suppose,' his daughter answered cheerfully, "'and keep nagging till it is there.' We'll keep up such a nagging, she added, in sweet, even tones, that you'll get the money by hook or crook to save yourselves from going insane. After this, he caught her reading in the New York papers the list of campaign meetings each night, meetings in hot, stifling halls or out upon deafening corners. And as she read, there came over her face a look like that of a man who has given up tobacco and suddenly sniffs it among his friends. She went down the last night of August. Roger stayed on for another two weeks, on into the best time of the year. For now came the nights of the first snapping frosts, when the dome of the heavens was steely blue, and clear sparkling mornings, the woods aflame with scarlet and gold. And across the small field below the house, at sunset Roger would go down to the copse of birches there, and find it filled with glints of light that took his glance far in among the slender, creamy stems of the trees, all slowly swaying to and fro, the leafage rich with autumn hues, warm orange, yellow, and pale green, lovely and silent and serene. So it had been when he was a boy, and so it would be when he was dead. Countless trees had been cut down, but others had risen in their stead. Now and then he could hear a bird warbling. Long ago this spot had been his mother's favorite refuge from her busy day in the house. She had almost always come alone, but sometimes Roger, stealing down, would watch her sitting motionless and staring in among the trees. Years later, in his reading, he had come upon the phrase, Sacred Grove, and at once he had thought of the birches. And sitting here where she had been, he felt again that boundless faith in life resplendent, conquering death and serenely sweeping him on into what he did not fear for this had been his mother's faith sometimes in the deepening dusk he could almost see her sitting here this faith in you has come from me this is my memory living on in you my son though you do not know how many times have i held you back how many times have i urged you on roused you up or soothed you made you hope or fear or dream through memories of long ago for you were once a part of me i molded you my little son and as i have seen to you so you will be to your children in their lives too we shall be there silent and invisible the dim strong figures of the past for this is the power of families this is the mystery of birth Suddenly he started. What was it that had thrilled him so? Only a tall, dark fir in the birches. But looming in there like a shadowy phantom, it had recalled a memory of a dusk far back in his boyhood, 
when seeing a shadow just like this he had thought it a ghost in very truth and had run for the house like a rabbit how terribly real that fright had been the recollection suddenly became so vivid in his mind that as though a veil had been lifted he felt the living presence here close by his side of a small barefoot mountain lad clothed in sober homespun grey but filled with warm desires dreams and curiosities exploring upon every hand now marching boldly forward now stealing up so cautiously now galloping away like mad i was once a child to most of us these are mere words to few it is ever given to attain so much as even a glimpse into the warm and quivering soul of that little stranger of long ago we do not know how we were made i moulded you my little son and as i have been to you so you will be to your children in their lives too we shall be there darker darker grew the copse and the chill of the night descended but to roger's eyes there was no gloom for he had seen a vision chapter fifteen on his return to the city roger found that deborah's school had apparently swept all other interests out of her mind baird hardly ever came to the house and she herself was seldom there except for a hasty dinner at night the house had to run itself more or less and though annie the cook was doing her best things did not run so smoothly roger missed little comforts attentions and he missed deborah most of all when he came down to his breakfast she had already left the house and often she did not return until long after he was in bed she felt the difference herself and though she did not put it in words her manner at times seemed to beg his forbearance but there were many evenings when her father found it difficult to hold to the resolve he had made to go slowly with his daughter until he could be more sure of his ground she was growing so intense again from the school authorities she had secured a still wider range and freedom for her new experiment and she was working day and night to put her ideas into effect it's only too easy she remarked to launch an idea in this town the town will put it in headlines at once and with it a picture of yourself in your best bib and tucker looking as though you loved the whole world and you can make a wonderful splurge until they go on to the next new thing the real trouble comes in working it out and this she had set out to do many nights in the autumn roger went down to the school to try to get some clear idea of this vision of hers for children which in a vague way he could feel was so much larger than his own for he had seen its driving force and the grip it had upon her life at first he could make nothing of it at all everywhere chaos met his eyes but he found something formless huge that made to him a strong appeal the big building fairly hummed at night with numberless activities fathers mothers and children came pouring in together and went scurrying off to their places they learned to speak english to read and write grown men and women scowled and toiled over their arithmetic they worked at trades in the various shops they hammered and sawed and set up type they cooked and sewed and gossiped the young galician socialist girls debated on the question 
resolved that women's suffrage had worked in Colorado. The Caruso Pleasure Club gave a dance to the Garibaldi Whirlwinds. An orchestra rehearsed like mad. They searched their memories for the songs and all the folk tales they had heard in peasant huts in Italy, in hamlets along rocky coasts, in the dark old ghettos of crowded towns in Poland and in Russia. And some of these songs were sung in school, and some of these tales were dramatized here. Children and parents all took part, and speakers emerged from the neighborhood. It was at times appalling, the number of young Italians and Jews who had ideas to give forth to their friends on socialism, poverty, marriage, and religion, and all the other questions that rose among these immigrants jammed into this tenement hive. But when there were too many of these self-appointed guides, the neighborhood shut down on them. We don't want, declared one indignant old woman, that every young loafer should shout in our face. Roger was slowly attracted to this enormous family life, and, yielding to an impulse, he took charge of a boys' club which met on Thursday evenings there. He knew well this job of fathering a small, jovial group of lads. He had done it before, many years ago, in the mission school to please his wife. He felt himself back on familiar ground, and from this point of vantage, with something definite he could do, he watched with an interest more clear the school form steadily closer ties with the tenements that hedged it round, gathering its big family. And this family, by slow degrees, began to make itself a part of the daily life of Roger's house. Committees held their meetings here, teachers dropped in frequently, and Roger invited the boys in his club to come up and see him whenever they liked. His most frequent visitor was Johnny Gear, the cripple. He was working in Roger's office now, and the two had soon become close friends. John kept himself so neat and clean, he displayed such a keen interest in all the details of office work, and he showed such a beaming appreciation of anything that was done for him. "'That boy is getting a hold on me lately, almost like a boy of my own,' Roger said one evening when Alan Baird was at the house. "'He's the pluckiest young'un I ever met.' I've put him to work in my private office, where he can use the sofa to rest, and I've made him my own stenographer, partly because he's so quick at dictation, and partly to try to make him slow down. He has the mind of a racehorse. He runs at night to libraries, until I should think he'd go insane, and his body can't stand it. He's breaking down, though whenever I ask him how he feels, he always says, fine, thank you. Here Roger turned to Alan. I wish you'd take the boy, he said, to the finest specialist in town, and see what can be done for his spine. I'll pay any price. There won't be any price, said Alan, but I'll see to it at once. He had John examined the same week. Well, asked Roger when they next met. Well, said Baird, it isn't good news. You mean he's hopeless? Alan nodded. It's Potts' disease and it's gone too far. John is eighteen. He may live to be thirty. But I tell you, Baird, I'll do anything. There's almost nothing you can do. If he had been taken when he was a baby, he might have been cured and given a chance. 
but the same mother who dropped him then when she was full of liquor just went to the druggist on her block and after listening to his advice she bought some patent medicine a steel jacket and some crutches and thought she'd done her duty but there must be something we can do retorted roger angrily yes said baird we can make him a little more comfortable and meanwhile we can help deborah here to get hold of other boys like john and give him a chance before it's too late keep them from being crippled for life because their mothers were too blind and ignorant to act in time baird's voice had a ring of bitterness most of em love their children roger said uneasily baird turned on him a steady look love isn't enough he retorted the time is coming very soon when we'll have the right to guard the child not only when it's a baby but even before it has been born roger drew closer to john after this often behind the beaming smile he would feel the pain and loneliness and the angry grit which was fighting it down and so he would ask john home to supper on nights when nobody else was there one day late in the afternoon they were walking home together along the west side of Madison Square. The big open space was studded with lights sparkling up at the frosty stars in a city, a world, a universe that seemed filled with the zest and the vigor of life. Out of these lights a mighty tower loomed high up in the sky, and stopping on his crutches, a grim small crooked figure in all this rushing turmoil, John set his jaws, and, with his shrewd and twinkling eyes fixed on the top of the tower, he said, I meant to tell you, Mr. Gale, you were asking me once what I wanted to be, and I want to be an architect. Do you? grunted Roger. He, too, looked up at that thing in the stars, and there was a tightening at his throat. All right, he added presently. Why not start in and be one? How? asked John alertly. "'Well, my boy,' said Roger, "'I'd hate to lose you in the office. "'Yes, sir, and I'd hate to go.' "'But then the big clock in the tower began to boom the hour, "'and a chill struck into Roger. "'You'd have to,' he said gruffly. "'You haven't any time to lose. "'I mean,' he hastily added, "'that for a job as big as that "'you'd need a lot of training. "'But if it's what you want to be, "'go right ahead. "'I'll back you. "'My son-in-law's a builder at present.' I'll talk to him and get his advice. We may be able to arrange to have you go right into his office, begin at the bottom and work straight up. In silence for a moment, John hobbled on by Roger's side. I'd hate to leave your place, he said. I know, was Roger's brusque reply, and I'd hate to lose you. We'll have to think it over. A few days later he talked with Bruce, who said he'd be glad to take the boy. And at dinner that night with Deborah, Roger asked him abruptly, "'Why not let Johnny come here for a while "'and use one of our empty bedrooms?' "'With a quick flush of pleased surprise, "'Deborah gave her father a look "'that embarrassed him tremendously. "'Well, why not?' he snapped at her. "'Sensible, isn't it?' "'Perfectly. "'And sensible it turned out to be. "'When John first heard about it, "'he was apparently quite overcome, "'and there followed a brief awkward pause while he rapidly blinked the joy from his eyes. But then he said, Fine, thank you, that's mighty good of you, Mr. Gale, in as matter-of-fact a tone as you please. And he entered the household in much the same way, for John had a sense of the fitness of things. 
He had always kept himself neat and clean, but he became immaculate now. He dined with Roger the first night, but early the next morning he went down to the kitchen and breakfasted there, and from this time on, unless he was especially urged to come up to the dining-room, John took all his meals downstairs. The maids were Irish, so was John. They were good Catholics, so was John. They loved the movies, so did John. In short, it worked out wonderfully. In less than a month, John had made himself an unobtrusive and natural part of the life of Roger's sober old house. It had had to stretch just a little, no more. End of section 5. Recording by James Carson.